chapter 24, Luke 24, beginning in verse 36. While they were still talking about this, that's the disciples, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And they were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. And he said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And then he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. And he told them, This is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. This is God's word for us tonight. If you would, um, pray with me before we consider these things together, okay? So let's just pray together. Uh, Father, uh, you know that uh, we have no hope of understanding what this passage means. We have no uh, hope of of making sense of it in our lives. Uh, We have no hope of coming in here and and learning or being transformed or converted or challenged or comforted apart from your Holy Spirit's help. And so at this point, we just want to ask for you to come and to teach us and to be our guide and to be um, our teacher. And uh, to that end, we pray and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, my wife, Catherine, who's not here tonight, uh, when she was in college, her junior year, she became um, real good friends with these two other girls, Hallie and Laura. And they were sort of like the, the three musketeers in some sense. And in fact, all three of them were dating uh, three other guys. I was not the guy at that point that she was dating. But all six of them would hang out a lot. And over this particular uh, Christmas break for uh, their junior year in college, they just kind of piled around all the time. This is just sort of the six of them all together. Uh, when that January hit, uh, my wife studied abroad and flew to Florence, Italy. And so she was there uh, for, for a semester. And she kept up with Hallie and Laura over email. They'd you know, chat every now and then. And, you know, whenever you're studying abroad, you do sort of these weekend trips. And so Catherine uh, took a weekend trip to Rome, you know, um, very spoiled of her. Uh, And so she would go to, she went to Rome, and when she came back, uh, I guess it was like that Sunday night, you know, was away from her computer all weekend, gets home, checks her email that Monday morning, she's got like eight or nine emails waiting for her. And, uh, you know, one's from Laura, one's from Hallie, some other friends. And about the sixth or seventh down, it was from her pastor back home in Memphis, Tennessee. And it said in all caps, uh, urgent prayer needed immediately. And she clicks it, and uh, the pastor explains how Laura had been tragically killed. And uh, which was confusing because she had, she's had an email from Laura and her inbox that had been sent like five hours before this email that was sent from her pastor. And so, you know, confused, she went through, 
click the uh, email from Laura and, and basically said, hey, I'm over at a friend's house. We're looking at pictures of Italy. It looks romantic there. I can't wait uh, for Dallas and I to go uh, because Dallas was her boyfriend and uh, they were talking about honeymooning in Italy. She says it looks romantic. I can't wait to see you when you get back. And so Catherine later found out what had happened is that Laura was over at some friend's house. Uh, she had sent that email. They were hanging out. She left you know, around 11 or 12 or sometime that evening and on her way home was hit uh, by a drunk driver and was instantly killed. And it was awful and it still is awful because uh, death is awful. And, and you know that. You, you know it deep in your heart <laughs> that death is terrible and in fact, I had a conversation recently with somebody who said that um, death is just natural. And uh, you know that that's not true. You know that it is completely unnatural. It is not the way that it's supposed to be. God did not create people uh, to die. This, this is not the way that it's supposed to be. And you know that deep in your bones. And I know, because I know some of your stories, that some of you have lost uh, siblings. Some of you have lost uh, close friends. Uh, some of you, uh, your grandparents ha- have passed away. For some of you, your parents or, or, or a close relative has passed away. And, and you know deep in your gut that death is not the way that it is supposed to be. It is something unnatural about the way that the world is now. And so what I want to do tonight and, and what we've been doing all, all basically semester is asking the question, is how is Jesus relevant to our lives? And so the question for, the, for tonight is, how is Jesus relevant to our death, to, to yours and mine included? Because your generation and my generation is just kind of convinced, we're, we're at least committed to this position that death is not a real part of life. And so we can avoid it and we can sort of put off the topic altogether. But the stark reality is, is that one day you and I are going to die. And we need to talk about it. And so we're going to talk about it tonight. How is Jesus relevant to our deaths, yours and mine included? And before we get into this actual passage, I just kind of want to clear the playing field because um, from my understanding, there are basically two different responses to death. And the responses are are, are, uh, kind of uh, twofold. The first is basically denial, where, where this topic of death comes and we just try as hard as we can to avoid it as a topic of conversation altogether. And this can look, this can take many different forms where you, we basically just distract ourselves with a million different distractions so we don't have to think about it. Uh, another form that this takes is that we just go to a church that is comprised only of college students so that we, we don't have to be around the, the, the sick and the dying. Uh, another way that we do this is that we, um, uh, we basically sort of cultivate an obsession uh, with health and with fitness. Uh, another way that we sort of deny the reality of death is, is we can over-spiritualize it. We kind of slap on these unhealthy, unhelpful, spiritualized, untrue cliches like bumper stickers that, uh, you know, death is really a good thing. It's just a, it's just, uh, a passageway to a better place. All of this is denial, in my opinion. It's just a stoic avoidance of actually dealing with the the horrific reality of what death is. It's denial. The second approach, the second response to death is uh, despair. It's the idea that, you know, death is this inevitable thing. You can't stop it. The end. 
And as a result, it's this, it's this miserable realization uh, that you are going to die, that everyone you love is going to die, and therefore, as a result, life is basically just sort of meaningless then. And so, you know, essentially, it all boils down to the fact that we're just biological bags of chemicals that run out of energy eventually. And so all of life is meaningless and throw yourself into the darkness and the absurdity of life. And there are many musicians and artists that have done that and are, in fact, inviting you into doing that with them. Despair. Denial and despair are sort of the two common responses. And do you know what Christianity's response to these two answers is? Do you know what the Bible's response to death is? It looks at both of these and it says, no. Those are lies. Neither one of those are, are true. The Bible's response to death, Christianity's response to death is this. You are real and we hate you. But in Jesus, you are our conquered enemy. You, you are definitely our enemy, but in Jesus, you are conquered. It, to, to kind of boil all that down, the response of, Christi- of Christianity to death is resurrection. And so what I want to do tonight is just sort of talk about resurrection in light of this passage. And I just want to try to answer two questions. What resurrection is and what the resurrection intends. So just two questions. What the resurrection is and what the resurrection intends in light of this passage. Okay? So what the resurrection is. What what do we mean by that word? What do Christians mean by that word resurrection? Here's what we mean. We mean the literal triumph over death. That death itself is undone. death Death is destroyed. And life is replaced by it. That's what we mean by resurrection. So, uh, you know, look at this story. Look at Jesus. This story takes place rightly after he was killed, barbarically killed by Romans. Roman soldiers knew how to kill people, and they threw him in a tomb. And, he was, and his body was rotting in there for three days. And this story takes place uh, right after that, where Jesus is actually raised from the dead. He who was once dead is now alive, and he shows up and he gives them greetings. Look at it in verse 36. He just shows up and says, Peace. What's up? I'm here. This, this is the claim of Christianity, that death is gone and life imperishable, imperishable is put in its place. And just so that you don't get confused on what the resurrection actually is, Luke, who, who writes this story, gives us a few details that are um, very helpful. So let me just pull out two quick details. Here's the first detail. It's that the resurrection is bodily. Bodily. Look at verse 37. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. And he said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. The disciples think they're seeing some ghost, some disembodied spirit that just sort of floated in the room. And Jesus is like, No, look, I have a real body. Like, touch my hands and my feet. I am, like, really here. I'm not like some misty ghost In Harry Potter, I am like, this is a real body. You can touch it. That's the first detail, that it is bodily. Here's the second one. It's that it is unmistakably physical. Okay, so keep going. Look at verse 40. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. I love this. And I actually thought this was kind of humorous this week because, you know, Jesus shows up. He's back from the dead. The disciples are shocked. Their jaws are on the floor. 
And Jesus is like, y'all got anything to eat here? He's like roaming through the pantry looking for Triscuits, you know? I, I just think that that's, I think that's amazing. But the question is, okay, why is that there? Why is Jesus doing that? Like, why are these earthy details here? This is why. It's because this is a picture of the hope for the believing Christian. It is this bodily, physical, tangible, touchable life back from the dead. That is resurrection. If that's what it is, then what is the purpose of it? What is the intention of it? Let's look at the second question. What, is the, what does the resurrection intend? In other words, what's the point? Okay, interesting. I don't know if I believe it. Not willing to swallow that people come back from the dead. Okay, understand. But what's the point of this? Well, for the rest of our time, I, just want, I want to try and pull out three kind of intended purposes behind the resurrection that this passage gives for us, okay? Here's the first one. The resurrection is intended to validate the truth of the gospel. That's the first thing. The resurrection is intended to validate the truth of the gospel. Look at 44, uh, verse 44. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you, that everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the, the, the prophets, and the Psalms. And then he opened up their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. And he told them, This is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. He points them back to the Old Testament, and he's showing them, okay, the Old Testament talked about this one, this Messiah, who was going to come and and bear the sins of his people upon himself, and that he would be crushed underneath death's weight itself, but that he would also rise from the dead as sort of the ultimate proof, the ultimate evidence that all of this stuff is actually real. And so just a few examples, Psalm 16 points out uh, that he, talking about this future Messiah, would not be swallowed by decay. Isaiah 53 says, even though he will die, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. Even though he dies, he will still see his offspring. And this is sort of the reality is that Jesus' resurrection is the ultimate proof, the ultimate sort of validation that the gospel is true. Now, it's hard for me to go uh, a week in RUF without referencing uh, my personal hero, Tim Keller, who is a um, Presbyterian pastor up in New York City. And, and a couple of years ago, he wrote a book called The Reason for God. Uh, it's a great book. If you yourself have questions, uh, it's just a great resource to put in your hands as far as answering some kind of skeptics' questions. If you consider yourself skeptical or if you have skeptical friends, it's just a great book. It's not, a, it's not like a um, nighttime <laughs> bedtime reading book. It's pretty dense, but it's great. It's super helpful. But when he wrote this book, you know, when when Christian authors come out with literature, they usually go on these book tours. And most Christians kind of stick within the Christian ghetto of the Christian subculture and, and, and promote their book at churches or at Christian colleges or at, you know, retreats. But Tim Keller took it to the streets and, and he, he was touring this book, and so he would speak at like Barnes and Noble. You know, he'd speak at Borders. He went into universities, and, and he'd promote this book and have these Q and A sessions. He'd go to UCAL Berkeley. He was at NYU. But the most interesting one is that when he he went and spoke at the Google headquarters in uh, in um, California. And in fact, you can see this video. It's on YouTube. Just type in Tim Keller Google. It's an hour long video. So, you know, pop some popcorn and watch it. But um, <laughs> 
But basically what he does is he speaks for about 45 minutes and then at the end is this Q&A from, from the Google staff. Like they, the, Google does this. It's the, called Authors at Google. Uh, anybody who um, comes out with kind of an interesting, thought-provoking book, they bring them in as sort of employment enrichment. And uh, they kind of do this. And so Keller gets up there and he, and he speaks for 45 minutes on, on why belief in God is rational and reasonable. And then he gets into this Q&A. And so some of the questions are, hostile, some are charitable and friendly, but the one that's most memorable and the one I kind of want to highlight tonight is the last guy who stands up. You can see it's like the last five minutes of this YouTube video. It's this guy that comes up in a purple shirt, tight like purple shirt, and um, one of my friends described him as being uh, humorously blasphemous. He's kind of being very tongue-in-cheek, and so he looks at Tim Keller and he goes, okay, okay. I have started a religion and I'm God in my religion. And, you know, he's being facetious. He's smiling. He, you know, this is all kind of tongue in cheek. And, and he's like, and, and the fact is, if you don't bow down and worship me, uh, I'll send you to a hell worse than the hell in the Bible. It's full of maggots and snakes and in-laws and uh, all kinds of other stuff. And uh, so he's kind of posing this question and he's like, okay, so why not? Like, why is that not true? Like, why can't I just do that? And, and you know, Tim Keller, the thing that's interesting about him is he's very calm in his response, and he's sitting there, he's got, like, his water bottle, and he goes, well, if you said the sort of things that uh, have been the most compelling things that anyone ever said, if you lived the life that was the most uh, unbelievable life that anyone's ever lived, and if you died and rose from the dead, then I think people should probably take you seriously. <laughs> <laughs> And so the guy goes, the guy responds, he's like, okay, okay, but I did die and rise from the dead, only I did it in Antarctica. And, um, and, and Keller goes, you see, that's something Christians would never say. And, and what he does is he points them next, he points this, this guy next to this passage in the Bible, 1 Corinthians 15, which was written 15 years after Jesus was, was raised from the dead. And Paul says, look, during this period when Jesus was raised from the dead, he appeared to this person, he appeared to that person, and at one point he appeared to 500 people at once. And they are still alive. Paul writes that, meaning, hey, they're still around. You can go and talk to them. You can go and corroborate the evidence and, and validate this yourself. And, and Keller's basically saying, Christians never say that. They never say it, the resurrection took place in this you know, corner in Antarctica. Here it is. These people are still alive. Go talk to them. Here's what's going on. This Google guy is saying, look, how can you validate what you are saying? It sounds crazy to me. And, and, and Keller gives the answer of the Bible, which is this. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, then this, all, this whole thing is a joke. Paul actually says that in, in 1 Corinthians 15. If the resurrection did not happen, Christians should be pitied more than anyone else because they think they have a Savior and they don't. But if he did, then this changes everything. And this validates everything. And the gospel then is necessarily true. If this dude raised from the dead, that is the case. That, that is the intention of the resurrection, is that it, it is to validate the truth of the gospel. And the gospel is just simply this, that even though we are more messed up and sinful than we could ever imagine, that in Jesus we are more loved and accepted than you could ever dare dream at the same time. And that therefore has to be true if the resurrection is true. If the resurrection didn't happen, let's all go home. That's the point. That's the first thing, that the resurrection is intended to validate the truth of the gospel. But okay, some of you are going, okay, 
that's great for Jesus and all. Let's say he was raised from the dead. Good for him. But that still does not change the fact that everybody else that I know is dying and will die. So how does that help? Here's the second thing. The resurrection is intended for everyone who trusts in Jesus. That's the second thing, the second intention. You know, elsewhere in the Bible, Paul refers to Jesus' resurrection as the first fruits, which is kind of a weird way to say it. And it's basically referencing uh, uh, harvest, springtime. Like you plant this huge crop, this, you know, field. You know, you kind of wait, you wait, you know, water, all that stuff. And, and when springtime comes, there's that first bud, that first little pop of something is coming. That's what's considered the first fruits. Meaning this thing has happened and it's just a, it, it is a foretaste, this guarantee that the, har- the rest of the harvest is coming right after it. That's what, Je- that's what the resurrection is, is saying. So look at um, verse 46. It says, He told them, this is what is written, the Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. He's basically saying this, look, as my disciples, I want you to go out now and tell everyone, tell all the nations, tell everyone that you can come in contact with that this is available for them. The resurrection is not just for me. It is available for all who trust in me. The way that the early church put it, they kind of put it in this little phrase was was basically this, Christ who died lives again and so shall all who trust in him. Christ who died lives again, and so shall all who trust in him. And so Jesus is, you know, he's offering forgiveness of sins to all nations, to everyone. But of course, that's a weird bible phrase, and it's easy to sort of just let that phrase be so, uh, you know, familiar that we don't know what that means. You will not know what that means unless you understand history, unless you understand the story of the world. So let me quickly tell you. The... the the story begins in creation, when God creates people for himself uh, as, uh, with the intention of living in joy and with harmony with each other, with him. This was the intention of the world. This, was, this is where you were made for, to live in peace with God and peace with each other. But of course, that is not the world that we woke up in this morning, right? I mean, we, we woke up into a world that is not filled with peace, but is one that is filled with hostility and with fractured, broken relationships, And so what has happened is that God's good creation, something happened where God's people rebelled against him. That's what the Bible calls sin. That that we have said, we want to rule our lives, not you. And we introduced this thing called sin. And as a result, death came in as one of the consequences of our sin. Death is this foreign intrusion into God's good creation because of our sin. And what Jesus is now doing, he is offering the remedy, offering a way to undo this sin and this death and all of the carnage that results. Because let's face it, um, we are born into this world spiritually dead. Many of you in this room right now feel dead on, on the inside. That's the way that you feel. And because we live in this world of death, people constantly now just inflict death upon one another, either with their venomous words or actually you know, with their hands and actually put other people to death. That is sort of the world that we live in now. It is one that is dominated by death. Jesus himself was crushed underneath the wheel of death itself. And so you just have to see, with his resurrection, death is now defeated as an enemy. 
This thing is undone. The spell has been lifted. The power has been conquered. And that's what Jesus is offering when he says forgiveness of sins, the sort of undoing of this whole death and sinful pattern that the world has been sort of subjected to. Early Christians in the first century uh, were the first people to refer to a graveyard as a cemetery. You know, that everybody at that time culturally just would refer to a graveyard as a graveyard or, uh, uh, you know, um, tombstones or whatever. Christians called it this weird, weird word called cemetery. You know what cemetery means? Dormitory. Or literally sleeping place. Because for Christians, they said, you know what? Death has, death has infected my friend, and they are not there. But you know what? They might as well just be sleeping. Because Jesus has done something about this thing called death. Death does not get the last word anymore. Jesus does. That's why they called it cemeteries. The resurrection is intended for everyone who trusts in Jesus. The resurrection is not just for him. It is for you. It is for me. So that's the second thing, that uh, the, the, the resurrection is intended to validate the truth of the gospel. It's intended for everyone who believes in Jesus. And here's the, here's the last thing, here's the third thing. The resurrection is intended for the whole earth. Look at verse 44 and 45 again. It says, uh, he said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. I mean, Jesus is constantly putting their nose in the scriptures and saying, I want you to see what the Bible says about what I have done, not only for you, but for the universe. That is what I want you to see. And here, in my opinion, is where most Christians are in the dark. Because we think, Christians in the room, I'll just talk to you for a second, we think that what Jesus has done is that he has lived and he has died and he has been raised from the dead to to purchase our salvation. That's what he's done. But the way that we define salvation is, is that that means that he takes our disembodied souls to this ethereal, cloudy place called heaven where we will be there with God forever for all of eternity in heaven. That is not the Christian hope. Heaven is the waiting room for the next thing. You know what the next thing is? A remade earth, physical, tangible, remade world resurrection. This is what we're talking about. Again, let's look at the story of the Bible. God begins by creating the earth good as a gift, as a place for his people to inhabit. He, He calls it good. It is dear to his heart. And of course, when sin comes in, sin does not just affect us as individual people. It affects the entire cosmos. That is why there are tsunamis. That is why there are hurricanes. That is why there is terrible stuff that is messed up in the, in the universe. The universe, you can tell, is just out of whack. It, Romans 8 says that all of creation is groaning. It is groaning because it has been subjected to decay. It is not just you and me as individual people. It is the world that we live in. So the hope then, God's solution is not to pull your souls away from this earth and just sort of scrap it and let it burn up. God's plan is to redeem not only you, but to redeem everything, all of creation. Let me read you just a few things out of the Bible. Isaiah 65 says this, 65, 17. Behold, this is God speaking, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. Never again 
will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his years? Never again. Revelation 21 picks up this idea of the new heavens and the new earth and it sort of expands it. And here's what it says in Revelation 21. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. No, Jesus' physical body, his physical resurrection is the prototype of what is to come. Or or think about it in these terms. It it is the movie trailer that that is telling you what the real movie is going to look like. Physical, tangible. That is why Jesus is eating a fish. Because it is real and it is tangible. It is concrete. The hope for the Christian is not to pull you away from this earth to heaven. But the hope is that God will bring the power of heaven to this earth and remake it and reform it. No more sin. No more death. No more carnage. No more pain. No more tears. That is your hope. That one day your body will come up out of the grave and get reconstituted and put back together. To live forever with Jesus. That is the Christian hope. You know, my um, favorite band at this point in my life is Mumford and Sons, and I reference them a bit. But I cannot help but, but think about this picture. I don't know, you know, th- their song, After the Storm. I don't know if this is what they're talking about. I don't know if they're talking about the new heavens and the new earth, but when I hear the song, that's where my imagination takes me. That this is what they're saying. Maybe I'm wrong, but, but, it, but it works. Here's what they say. Night has always pushed up day, and you must know life to, to see decay, but I won't rot. I won't rot. Not this mind and not this heart. I won't rot. And here's the chorus. There will come a time you'll see with no more tears, and love will not break your heart but dismiss your fears. Get over your hill and see what you find there with grace in your heart and flowers in your hair. That is the picture. Now let me wrap up here because I began with asking you this question. Okay, how is Jesus relevant to our deaths? And here's how. Have you ever had a nightmare that was so vivid that was so real, it was so terrible. You know, like, I, I, I know on occasion I've had, I've had dreams, I've had nightmares where, where, I've, where my wife Catherine has been killed and uh, awful things are happening and you just, you know, it feels terrible. And then you wake up. And just that, you know, that sigh of relief when you realize, oh my gosh, it was just a dream. And all that was bad just became untrue. All that was, that was bad just became untrue. It's that wonderful feeling. The way that Jesus is relevant to your death and to mine and to the death of all of our friends and our families is this, that one day he says all of the death and all of the sin and all of the carnage will be made undone. It will become untrue. It will be like waking up to, a, to realize that it was all just a bad dream and it has, and it has been made right. You know, there's that great, that great classic line in The Lord of the Rings where Samwise is talking to Gandalf and he says, you know, I, I thought you were dead. I, I thought I was dead. Will all that is sad become untrue? And of course, the answer of the Bible is yeah. In Jesus, it will. That is our hope. 
that Christ who died lives again, and so shall all who trust in him. That's your invitation tonight. Pray with me. Our Father and our Redeemer, you have conquered death. You have given us a hope that is invincible. And I pray, Father, that you would give me and give these folks the grace to lean into that truth. Father, I know that there are folks that here that are hurting as a result of these things, and they should because death is terrible. But I pray that you would be with them, and I pray that you would invigorate their hope that, that you have conquered death. You, ha- you have crushed it underneath your feet, and one day we look forward to a world where it will be no more. Give us hope, give us grace, and give us faith in that regard. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.